Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, we have another installment of Winning the Job. This episode is going to feature Ryan Jack Roberts. Ryan recently won the English horn position with the New York Philharmonic. Ryan's success in this audition is really wonderful, and I'm very thankful that he was so generous with his time. We began the interview by me asking him, how did you prepare for the audition technically and musically? Here's what he said. When I was doing my undergraduate studies at Juilliard, we would have a yearly English horn audition. So most of the excerpts that were on the list were already familiar to me, and I had a chance to play them in an audition setting before. Some of them I had actually played in orchestra a few times. But there were a few surprises. So obviously the excerpts that I didn't recognize right off the bat, I spent a little bit more time on. But the list was pretty standard, so there weren't that many of those. In terms of general preparation, I did a lot of mock auditions, which I do for every audition um, and actually every performance that I do. I try to to have a good series of run-throughs that I record and I listen back on take notes on. And while I was taking this audition, I was a member of the New World Symphony. And so I had a huge amount of colleagues who were at my disposal to listen to my mock auditions. Um, a lot of times we would trade back and forth. So it's not a, you know, <laughs> a one-sided yeah. transaction. Um, but it becomes, it becomes a really easy way to get to know how your playing changes. Um, in an audition scenario and under pressure. And once you're able to sort of recognize those changes and um, become aware of them, you can find ways, hopefully, to improve them when you're in the real audition. And so, yeah, obviously run-throughs and recordings were a really, really big part of my, of my preparation for this audition. I'm always interested in hearing how musicians break down technical excerpts and work to ingrain great habits when executing them. I asked Ryan what he did to break down the technical excerpts, and this was his answer. The funny thing about the English horn is that we don't actually have that many technical excerpts. Composers nowadays are, are having more and more faith or seem to have more and more faith in modern English horn players' technical <laughs> abilities, but the composers of the past may not have. I think there was really only one or two technical excerpts that involved some fast tonguing or some fast notes, but with any technical excerpt on oboe or English horn, I'm a really, really big fan of uh, breaking down the passages into sort of altered rhythms. So if you have a passage of 16th notes, picking the first note to go long, short, 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 long, short, 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 long, or short, long, short, 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 long, short, 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 long, and so on, so on and so forth, isolating it that way. I think it's really immediately illuminating as to where the problems are and which intervals are, are difficult. I'm also a big fan of anchoring on specific notes in a long, tricky technical passage to have sort of benchmarks where you can reach that point and even just for a, a millisecond have your brain 
rest and anchor itself onto a specific note in a passage. And that, that always sort of helps me break things down. Uh, I think one of the big problems with preparing technical passages is that there's so much to think about that if you don't sectionalize it and you don't break it down into chunks, it can feel like one big overwhelming mess rather than three, four, five, or six smaller, more manageable messes. It was surprising to me to find that there weren't that many technical excerpts to play on the English horn, but after I thought about the repertoire, it kind of makes sense. Oftentimes, simply being able to execute certain excerpts at an audition can be something that separates candidates at an audition. Since that's not so much the case for English horn, I asked Ryan what things he does think separates musicians at an English horn audition. He gave a great answer. Before we get to it, though, as a side note for me, this is why I find it's important to try to learn from all musicians that have experienced success. The perspectives we get from others, and in this case from Ryan, can absolutely be helpful to our own. I think with English horn, um, thinking about its role in the orchestra, when a composer writes for the English horn, there's always a purpose, and usually that purpose is a big solo moment or a, or a special color in chorale passages or, or an added depth to the wind section. But there is always a purpose. It's not, you know, a standard orchestral instrument in the sense that, you know, it's not a given that an English horn is going to be on any piece in the same way that, you know, an oboe might be or a clarinet or a flute or bassoon. So I think what a committee would be looking for in an English horn player is someone with a distinct personality that is appreciated by and, and sort of complements the larger group of soloists in the orchestra. And it can be a challenge to find that person because I think naturally in any soloistic role, there's a matter of subjectivity that, that comes into play in terms of personal, artistic, musical preference. And a lot of the times for any audition, there will be five, six, seven, maybe even more people that show up that are 100% capable of doing the job beautifully. And at that point, it can just come down to whose sound is the best fit or whose you know, musical voice is the best fit for the wind section or for the orchestra as a whole. I think that's what would separate people in, in an English horn audition, especially because there's not as many opportunities for black and white comparisons between, you know, can this person play this fast passage or not. It, it really comes down to their unique voice. It's clear Ryan is saying that being a complete musician is something that is necessary for success at an audition, not just being a great instrumentalist. I followed up with him to see what he incorporated into his preparation to help develop his musicianship. I think for me, I've always tried to emulate the way a singer sings in my playing. My principal teacher was Elaine Dubois at Juilliard, and she is principal oboe of the Metropolitan Opera. And so um, through her, I really have grown to understand the way that singers are able to do these things that are so technically difficult for wind players with such effortlessness because there is less of a technical barrier in terms of having an instrument to command. So for me, I... I try to listen to recordings of myself and judge if they sound like how I would sing a certain passage. And a lot of times when I'm practicing and trying to get a passage to sound the way that I want it to, I will stop playing and, and just sing what I 
am working on in an attempt to see how I might create an inflection between two notes or how my breath moves with the line and sort of remove the technical barriers because on oboe and English horn, there are so many technical barriers. <laughs> right, not right. Only, you know, not only our instruments, but, but our reeds and with English horn, the vocal and the wire. And there's, you know, there's so many, so many things that go into just producing a sound on the oboe or English horn that it, it really helps to remove it and kind of get to the essence of what you are trying to say uh, with, with the music at hand. For those of us non-woodwind players that are unaware, making reeds for double reed instruments is basically a full-time job. Developing great reed-making habits is just as important for success in performance as practicing your actual repertoire. I asked Ryan what advice he had on reed-making for any of the woodwind players that might be listening. Let's see what he said. My best advice about reed-making is try to be as objective as possible. Um, there are so many things about reed making that are subjective. You know, we, we strive to create a certain kind of tone or we all want different elements of resistance or stability or flexibility in our reeds. But there are a certain amount of variables that you really can control in an objective way. I personally have a set of reed tests uh, that I assigned to every read, and ideally, when they're all working in perfect condition, uh, they, you know, all my reads should do these tests in, this, in the same way. And especially for English horn, one of the big things that is a challenge for us is response, just because oftentimes in a piece, we will sit for a movement or two movements without playing a single note and then come in on our big solo of the night. I'm thinking now about two examples of this. One of them is uh, Symphony Fantastique, mm -hmm. in which we play literally not a single note until our first solo in the third movement, which is completely alone, as I'm sure everyone listening knows. Um, and another example of a solo like that would be Dvorak 9, where, again, we sit until our solo, and then we have to come in. And so having a read that you scrape in a way that you just trust 100% with an attack on any note is really, really important and something that will provide you with an, a lot of comfort in, in your life and in your job. It's really, really stressful to sit there, especially in a rehearsal or a performance, if you don't trust your read and you're you know, just wondering, oh gosh, is this first note going to come out or not? That's a, a terrible feeling that so many oboists and English hornists can relate to. So, yeah, my best advice would be be as objective as you can and make reads that inspire confidence. <laughs> Time management is an important skill to improve and master if you have a lot on your plate. I asked Ryan how much time he spent per day practicing on average. I wanted to try to get a baseline of how he was spending his time. Yeah. It's sort of interesting. I personally have never been a super, super, super regular practicer. And that might sound kind of crazy to say, and I'm not saying that I don't practice, but I, you know, I know a lot of people who wake up every day and they do two hours in the morning and then they go about their day and they do two hours in the you know, afternoon or evening and they have a regimented 
approach to to practicing. I have never thrived in that kind of setting. I constantly disappoint myself if I get off my you know prescribed schedule and life inevitably gets in the way with these kinds of things. So for me, I kind of let my practicing ebb and flow. If I have a lot of time on my hands, I'll try to put in a lot of work and get ahead on my preparation. And if I have more to do that week, I sort of just accept that, you know, my practicing is going to just have to be more productive in a shorter amount of time. For this specific audition, it came at kind of a a tough time because I had been taking a lot of auditions in the previous weeks, and there were so many auditions that were sort of piling up one after the other, week after week. And these previous auditions were all oboe auditions. And when this English horn audition came around at the end of this long stretch of difficult preparation on another instrument and also still having to perform with the New World Symphony, it was a challenge for me to even muster the energy to prepare for yet another audition on another instrument. My preparation time-wise, I think, would have been around 60 or 70% read making and 30 or 40% actual playing preparation um, for auditions. And, and, and those numbers might sound completely jarring to anyone who's not a double read player. Totally, yeah. But yeah, with, with any kind of double read audition, it's sort of inevitable that it's going to come down to the read. Not, you know, the read isn't going to win you the audition, but if you put in hours and hours and hours of preparation and you have a read that does not allow you to showcase what you have prepared musically and technically, it really is just kind of a shame because it's, it's an immediate handicap put on your audition. So having the perfect read was really important to me. And I was thankful that I was able to prioritize my time in that way because, as I mentioned before, I, I really had spent a lot of time working on these excerpts from a musical and technical standpoint in the past um, in my conservatory training. And when I did get down to the last week, especially the week in between the prelim and the semifinal and final rounds, um, I had a solid week in between, that was a lot of just recording, doing mock auditions, listening back. Time-wise, in the week between the prelims and the semis and finals, I would say I was averaging around three hours of practice a day. Any more, and I, I would go crazy, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I needed to feel like I was in contact with the music. And this this is just another thing to think about. It doesn't always work out that there's a lot of time between the prelim round and the semi and final round of an audition. But if you do have time in between rounds, and by time I mean, you know, a matter of days or something, using your memory of your earlier rounds as a teaching tool to help yourself is really important. And I know that recording auditions is illegal, and i that's not r- really what I'm talking about. What I mean is when I finish an audition, I try to put my oboe away as quickly as possible and come back and write in my oboe journal or, you know, on some piece of paper or on my phone or something, just general impressions about how I felt I played. I tried to pay attention to whether I was nervous, whether I was hot, whether I was cold, whether my hands were sweaty, whether I was shaky at all, um, whether my reed felt dry or my mouth felt dry, all these things that we pay so much attention to when we are in the moment and in the audition that seem to kind of vanish from our memories immediately after we finish. So I think trying to pay attention to those things and, and really write them down as soon as possible 
to allow yourself to learn from them. That's been a, a big learning tool for me in the past. In addition to the technical preparation, finding ways to prepare yourself mentally for an audition is paramount for success. Putting in a great deal of time and effort into your audition prep only to have your mind betray you on the day of the actual audition is a very frustrating experience. I asked Ryan what his approach to getting his head in a good space was for an audition. Yeah, I think this is one of the big challenges about auditioning in general, I think everyone would agree, is just figuring out a way to get yourself into the right headspace. For me, the right headspace is a headspace in which I feel relaxed and excited and that I feel like I have a musical gift that I've spent a lot of time preparing that I'm sharing with the audience. And I say the audience purposefully because thinking of the committee as judges (laughs) is sort of oppressive in a way. Um, a few things that help me get into that mental state, and these are a little bit ridiculous, but I take my shoes off when I'm in the warm-up room, and sometimes I get funny looks for it, but it just immediately helps me be so much more at ease um, walking around in my socks. It's kind of silly, but hmm. you should try it if you haven't before. Another thing that I do is on the day of the audition, I try not to listen to classical music, actually. I find that it can kind of stress me out. I have a playlist that I put together for each audition with, you know, a selection of my favorite songs of other genres of music uh, that are upbeat and positive and happy and get me excited. I also kind of you know, if I have a chance to be in a private warm-up room right before I go on stage, doing a little dance, jamming out to your favorite song, is something that I think everyone should try because it's helpful. I think everything about the physicality of auditioning and being just so nervous from the second you wake up in the morning and thinking about this, you know, this five-minute stretch of your day that's going to determine the course of the rest of your life is, you know, it it sucks to think about. It's not, you know, it's not a a pleasant way to to have any time spent in your life um, just in this state of perpetual anxiety. And it's kind of, it is difficult to be anxious when you're blasting your favorite song in your headphones and jumping around (laughs) and being, you know, being silly backstage. As long as you can't be seen by the personnel manager or anyone who <laughs> might have any influence on your, you know, on your placement in the audition. Um, but other than that, 
I, yeah, I do take beta blockers. I am not shy about admitting that. I think that, um, you know, it's something that people should try if they're having really serious problems with performance anxiety. Obviously, talk to your doctor about it. I can't recommend it for everybody, but it's something that has helped me just kind of take a little bit of the edge off of performing in an audition setting, which is just such an incredibly unnatural way of performing. Um, I don't I don't usually take them for performances or other sort of soloistic opportunities, but something about an audition is really unnatural. And um, I wish the way the auditions were structured made it feel a little bit more like a recital and less like a standardized test, but that's just sort of the fact of the matter at this point. And it's it's something that has helped me and I'm I'm not shy about it because I think the common misconception is that beta blockers are some sort of performance enhancing drug. And if you don't practice and don't prepare for an audition and, and take the beta blocker, it's really not going to make you Superman. It's not going to make you all of a sudden into it's Roman. <laughs> right. But what's really a shame is if you spend so much time and so much energy and, and you know, frankly, you spend so much money flying around the country taking auditions that you've put so much time and preparation into and not being able to accurately represent your level of preparation and musicianship because of your body's natural physical response to this incredibly stressful, unnatural situation. But again, some people meditate and have found that to be a really uh, helpful way to deal with performance anxiety. Everybody has their strategies, but those are a few of mine. I'm glad that Ryan mentioned beta blockers. I think it's really important to understand that beta blockers are a tool that can help you play more like you in a stressful situation. You still need to prepare mentally and technically. Nothing is going to replace that kind of work. But knowing that beta blockers were a small part of Ryan's success in his audition is good to know. To finish up the interview, I asked Ryan if there were any other thoughts or comments that he had about audition success. You know, I think it's really easy to get into the mindset when you're taking a lot of auditions. And I, I did take a good amount of auditions before I won the New York Phil audition. But, you know, I, I had I had been taking auditions for a while and it can feel so numbing to be in this process of, you know, week after week preparing a new list for a new set of people who are going to listen in a different way to the same excerpts that you've been preparing your whole life and you've really worked hard to put your individual stamp on. In a lot of ways, I really, truly believe that I got lucky with this audition. I don't mean that in the sense that I played well out of luck. I just mean that I happened to find a committee who appreciated what I had been working so hard to offer up musically. And I don't think that people give that enough thought, especially when coping with, you know, I don't want to use the word failure because any, just even going to an audition and playing at all is, is a triumph. But, you know, with disappointment in auditions, it's something that needs to be thought about more, that committees are people. They have taste. They have different backgrounds. They have different things that they like and don't like, and they've maybe had different careers in different countries or, you know, different teachers with different ideas. There's there's so much that's subjective about taking an orchestral audition. And my best advice to sort of keep yourself positive is just to constantly remind yourself that 
there is this huge, huge, huge variable of subjectivity. A committee is looking for someone who not only is capable, but who fits in to the section, that fits into the orchestra, that fits into the group, you know, the group of people that make up this institution. And it could be that you played better than the person that won on an objective scale. Maybe your intonation was better and your accuracy and this and that, but, but maybe you just weren't the right fit. And the day that everything clicks is really the day that luck is on your side in the sense that what the committee hears as positive is also what you hear as positive. I hear a lot of funny stories about people, you know, in finals of auditions that say, you know, I played a wrong note. And so now I'm, you know, not going to advance and then I'm not going to win. And then they end up winning or something like that. Oh, I played this excerpt in the wrong key signature, but they still win anyway. <laughs> Those kind of stories always validate this feeling that I have that it is about so much more. Also, if you think about hiring someone, ideally it's for a long-term position. It's for, you know, decades and decades of being in an orchestra. They understand that people make mistakes, that things happen on a human level. But if I'm sitting on a committee... I am going to be so much more inclined to listen to someone and try my best to hear them as a musician and hear their unique musical voice and really try to prioritize that over a lot of the things that we as audition takers focus so much on, like pitch and technique and tone and all of that. Obviously, those things are important and they sort of have to be a given on some level but orchestras are trying to hire musicians that they believe in, that, that they want to sit next to, and also that they want to be inspired by on on a daily and, and weekly basis. So I think there is a silver lining to, to all this audition taking. I love what he said about how he thinks of luck in an audition as both you and the committee agreeing on what is positive about your playing. Not advancing or not winning an audition is not necessarily a comment on you as a player and certainly not as a person. Sometimes you don't win an audition simply because they felt like a different candidate fit what they were looking for. All we can do is prepare to the best of our ability, do our best to play musically in the audition, and then continue refining that process until the stars align for us. I think that's going to be all for this episode. I want to again thank Ryan for giving of his time and wisdom to provide us all with the ability to be more successful in our audition process. If you enjoyed this episode or others on the podcast, consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes for the podcast. And also be sure to share this episode on social media so others can learn from Ryan's advice too. I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time.